With all those that are still in the foyer, we're about to begin. God bless you. Over to you, young Peter. Thank you, sir. All right. Um, here we go. So I'm aware that I've been asked to tell the story, and I will, but I just want to put a couple of other things around it uh, before I go there. Um, so my, my first thought, uh, again, for your consideration is this, is that um, the Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, and the Muslim code of law, each of these offer a way to earn approval from God. But only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. So every other religion in the world, um, including some expressions of Christianity as well, as I said before, uh, when they're in that Old Testament framework, want to uh, characterise relationship with God on the basis of behaviour, that it's about performance and that if I perform in a certain way, then God will love me. If I perform in another way, then God will hold something against me. Um, the reason for that is because we, we actually are a lot more comfortable with performance-orientated relationships than we are with unconditional relationships. And we're much more comfortable with those because, as I said before, from, from the time we've been born, we've been trying to answer this question, what is right and required for acceptance? And so we've always found acceptance with other people on the basis of our behaviour. And we tend to accept other people on the basis of their behaviour. Um, but the, the thing about Jesus is that he accepts us unconditionally. He doesn't, he doesn't accept us on the basis of our behaving right. And so when it comes to the, the how-to... One of the most important things uh, to keep in mind uh, with the how-to conversation is that it's, it's not actually about my performance in the how-to, but it's about how I surrender to a relationship with God, how I actually yield to him and I begin to allow him to be right and me to reassess what it is that I'm doing and thinking and believing. My second thought in helping us climb into this space comes out of Luke 15 and the story of the prodigal son. Um, I actually think that it's incorrectly titled. There are three players in that story. There's the father and his two boys. Um, there's the boy that decides to take half his, take his inheritance and he goes and squanders it and he comes back to the father repentant. And then there's the older brother who believes that his relationship with his father is on the basis of performance as well, that I've been a good boy, why am I not getting what I deserve? And so the story for me is actually more about the character of the father. It's about a father who's, who's not actually focused on the misdeeds of his sons. The two boys are focused on their behaviour. The younger one focused on their behaviour that says, I've failed. And because I've failed, I'm not worthy to be your son. And the older boy who says, I've done everything right, I'm not sure why I'm not getting what I deserve. Um, and so, so what, what I think Jesus is actually trying to teach us in that story is that the focus is on a father who has extravagant love that he wants to lavish on every human being. That his, his father's love is not... Um, the father's love reflects the father's character, not the son's behaviour. And so responsible behaviour does not increase the father's love, nor does irresponsible behaviour decrease the father's love. So the father's love for us, so when it comes to experiencing the love of God and how you let God into your world, you've somehow got to be able to get past the thought and the idea and the notion that his love for you is connected to your behaviour because that's how you have who, how you've been raised, to believe that other people's love for you is on the basis of your behaviour, what is right and required for acceptance. I belong, I feel secure and I feel significant because I'm behaving in a way that other people approve of. And, but that's not the way that God approaches us. And so the story of the prodigal son is actually designed to help us to realise that God's love is, is not connected to the behaviour of his two boys. Irresponsible behaviour did not change the father's love. He waited at the gate for the boy to come back. Responsible behaviour did not change the father's love. 
It, his, his love for his two boys was based on who the father was, not on what the boys were doing. And so, so God is love, and he's, he's basically, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God has forgiven all mankind of their transgressions. The way that you access that forgiveness is to believe in the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. Once you've accessed that, that he loves you and accepts you because you've accepted the work of the cross, that all of your sin was punished in Christ, then your relationship with God is never about acceptance anymore. You are totally accepted in, in God. You are totally, you're okay with God. It's always about your freedom. So he's interested in setting you free. It's never a question of your acceptance. And so if you find that you're failing, if you find that you're not achieving or living up to the places that you want to, wanting to live up to, like loving well, it's, God is not going to punish you because of your failure. He actually wants to help you realise what it is that's stopping you from stepping into the fullness of that and wants to set you free from the things that are stopping you from stepping into that. And so, so a, lot of, a lot of Christians, when they actually approach God, they're not approaching him with a correct understanding of how much he loves them in the first place. They, they try and hide from God. And so we may well get to this later on, but um, there's this complex little arrangement that we have in our own inner world between fear, shame, surrender and vulnerability. And, and that fear and shame want to keep us away from God but surrender and vulnerability are the very things that pull us into God. And so, so we, we have this internal wrestle between my fear and my shame versus God's desire that we would surrender and be vulnerable. Um, and so personal experience with God, the how-to is actually understanding that wrestle on the inside. It's to, to step into what I'm talking about, to experience the love of God, means that we need to be able to acknowledge I have this deal going on inside of me around fear and shame um, which started in the Garden of, of Eden. So let's just go to Genesis chapter 3. I am going to tell the story. I'm just I'm wanting to put it in context. If I just tell the story for the story's sake, it doesn't have enough. It just looks like something else you've got to do. Um, so Genesis chapter 3 verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So you've got to ask yourself, why are they hiding themselves? They're hiding themselves because they're ashamed. Um, shame causes us to hide from one another. And, and we all live with a degree of shame. Some of us live with more shame than others. But our ability to be authentic with one another is dependent upon our capacity to get past the shame that we feel on the inside. A lot of people think, if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. And so I'm not going to let you see the things that I don't think that, that I'm not proud of, the places of shame. And so because of that shame, we don't, we don't live authentically with people. We live behind masks. And so, so when you live behind a mask, you're actually not letting yourself and or God or others to help you get set free from the shame. So we hide. We hide ourselves behind what we think people want to see rather than letting them into our struggles and so here we find that they they hid they hid from the and so so let's remember this this relationship up until this point i experienced this in life as well as a leader um, the problem with being a leader is that people have got all sorts of difficulties with authority figures and unresolved emotional stuff and they tend to transfer it onto me um, at times and so i can do life with people for 15 years and I can be this kind, loving, nurturing, help you get... So, you know, I'm thinking of one couple in particular. I, I help your marriage, which is in absolute disarray, and your family is in, so dysfunctional, and I spend 15 years pouring my life into you to a place where you are functional, where your family's much better, where you've got a great marriage. And then something happens in their world, and they think differently about me. They forget that 15 years and they then start to focus on something that they think has gone wrong. Um, and so, so with that in mind, if we come to this, we don't know how long God has been walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening, but he's come into the garden as a loving father. He's helped them name the animals. He's given them authority over all of creation. He's a father who is sharing his life and his power with them. 
And so it's a relationship where these um, uh, Adam and Eve know God as being kind and generous and loving and warm and affirming and believing, and, and he, he's just this extraordinary father to them. And so, but now they've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they're now hiding from this person who they've only known to love them. Something's changed in them. God hasn't changed. Something's changed in them. And what's changed in them is that they now have a knowledge that they didn't have before because they ate of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and so they, they're now hiding from the one who loves them the most. And, and that's what shame does. Shame causes us to hide from the one we love the most, and his name is Jesus. And so, so we, we, we think that, you know, how can I be vulnerable with God and, and let God know about this, let alone letting other people know about this? And, and so we remain defensive. So, so it's, it's quite extraordinary that they would hide from the very person who has the most ability to help them. But that's what shame does. It, it causes us to see, see the world incorrectly. For most of us, we don't see the world the way it really is. For most of us, we see the, way, we see the world the way that we are. So we don't, we don't see circumstances the way they really are. We see things the way we are. And so if I'm afraid of failure, um, I don't see circumstances for what they really are. So somebody can be saying something, and they're not actually saying that I'm failing at all, but I hear it as failure because I see the world the way I am rather than seeing the world for the way that it really is. And so that's what shame does, and that's what happened here. They, they stopped seeing the father for who he really was, and they started to see the father through how they were, how, who they'd become. And so, so they're hiding, so shame has kicked in. Then the Lord God, verse 9, Genesis chapter 3, um, called to the man and said to him, where are you? Um, this is not a geographical question. He knows exactly where they are because he knows everything. What he's asking is, where are you in your relationship with me? He wants them to become self-aware and take personal responsibility. He's wanting them to answer the question, I, I've changed the way I'm relating to you. Because when we, God is like, God's a conversationalist. He invites us into conversation because he wants us to be self-aware. He's a God who asks questions all the time. He tells parables because he wants us to ask questions. So he wants a relationship with us. You know, I, I've learned this with Lynn. Um, my wife, that uh, Lynn's a you know, love language is quality time. And uh, she just loves to sit on the couch with a cup of tea and just have me sit there with her. And we talk and we sit and we sit and she talks a bit and we talk and we sit and that's really great for her. And for me, it's taken me a long time to go, I can do this without thinking about all the other things that I want to be doing as I'm sitting there listening. And, uh, and so, so God's a conversationalist. He, he just loves us to sit and to be with him. This is the story of Mary and Martha. You know, Jesus has come to their home and Martha's rushing around preparing a meal that Jesus didn't ask for. Um, and she's all upset that Mary's not actually participating in getting the meal ready because Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to what he's got to say. And, and so Martha expresses her dissatisfaction to Jesus and Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but Mary has chosen the better thing. Didn't say to Martha, you're wrong, you're doing something bad, just said that Mary's actually figured out that sitting at my feet and listening to me is actually what I'm into more than you running around and preparing a meal for me. And so, so we live in this high-paced, activity-orientated world where we think that you know, doing stuff for God is what's going to impress him. But what he actually wants is relationship with us. He wants us just sitting there with him and listening to the conversation and engaging in the conversation. So here he's, he's got a conversation going, where are you? He wants, to, he wants them to own that the relationship has changed because they have positioned themselves differently now. And he wants them to be self-aware and take responsibility for it. Um, then the, the story continues. Uh, he said... I heard the sound of you in the garden, so this is Adam, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. So shame comes, and what follows on the, on the feet of shame is fear. Fear always comes in after shame. And so when we're ashamed of something, we're afraid that other people will find out. They'll find out what we've done that we're ashamed of. And so when we're afraid, we start to hide again. And so shame causes us to hide, and fear causes us to hide. And then the story continues, and he said, who told you that you were naked? So again, he's entering into a conversation. 
He's not angry with them. He's just wanting to get them involved in a conversation. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And, uh, and so, so the Lord will actually ask you, this is the whole thing about what are you believing? Who told you that? Who told you what you're believing which is causing you to behave in a way that doesn't love other people well? Who told you that it was okay to criticise that person? Who told you that it was all right to judge them? Who told you that you had the right to make them the bad guy and make you the good guy? Who told you that that was all okay? Because I certainly didn't tell you. <laughs> so so he's, he's, he's actually wanting us to examine, where did I start believing that that was all right? Where did I start to even assume that that was acceptable? And where did that information come from? Because it's only when we discover where the roots of it are that we can actually begin to pull it out with the help of the Holy Spirit and begin to change it. And so we've got all these experiences and encounters which have created this inner turmoil for us that the Lord is wanting to replace with his experience and encounter, but we actually have to own what we've already got on the inside so that we can give it all to him. That little piece is important in the context of telling the story uh, when I get there. And then the third thing that happens here, the man said, um, who told you that? And so the man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And it's been the same ever since. Men have always continued to blame the woman. And then the woman blamed the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. So what they're really doing now is trying to control the situation. So shame leads to fear, which leads to control. And so when we're trying to control our world, we're not loving people well because we're actually, we control through criticism, we control through comparison, and we control through containment. We try and stay contained and not let people into our world. And so when we're controlling, we can't love from that sort of a space. And so, so what, what, this is the way that we've all been raised. We, we, we've all been raised because what is right and required for acceptance, we do something that we're ashamed of. It causes us to have counsels of fear. We then want to control. And so then we're locked up in the way that we love people. And so we, we've, we've got to understand that God, his... He understands all of this and he's okay with it at one level. He's not okay with it in the sense of saying, I'm going to leave you like that, but I do understand how you are and so you can come as you are before me. I, I'm, I'm happy for you to come. He just wanted these guys to be able to own what they were doing, but instead of owning it, they blamed everybody else. And then the consequences weren't all that great. So, um, final thought, then I'll tell the story. Uh, and so, so God wants to be known through personal experience. Lots of Christians are satisfied with believing certain things as statements of their faith. I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. I believe that God is three in one. I believe that there is only one God, the things that we believe. And, and we can put into that category of beliefs, I believe that God loves me. And what I want to say today is it's not sufficient to just believe in the doctrine that God loves me, I actually have to believe through experience and encounter that God loves me. Because if I just believe it as a doctrine, I actually have all these other experiences and encounters on the inside of with other people, the inner turmoil I was talking about before, that when we're under pressure, we'll access that rather than accessing what God has revealed to us. And so, so it's, God is actually wanting to give us these experiences and encounters. And so as I say, when I come into worship, when I come to be with other Christians, I, I come with an expectancy that God is going to turn up and give me another experience or encounter with his love. And with that expectancy, he continually meets it and comes to it. But there's more to it than that as well. So uh, October of 2004. Uh, I've now been a Christian uh, for, since 1982, 2004. What's that? 22 years. I've been a church leader for about 19 of those years. I'm leading a church in Melbourne that is known around the nation, and I'm, no, I'm known around the nation, um, and people look favourably upon me. Not everybody. Some people that get close to me who decide they didn't like me anymore, they don't feel as favourably disposed. But <coughs> somebody said to me last night, I hear so many things about you, so many great things about you and the, and the church. I say, oh, I can introduce you to some others that will counteract that point of view if you want. <laughs> so anyway, that's another story. I haven't always done as well as I'd like to in loving other people. 
So, so 2004, um, God turns up and he begins a conversation with me. And he begins this conversation about the fear that's in my life, those four fears that I was talking about. And so over a six-month period, I became aware that the, those four fears were in my world and, I, and the Holy Spirit started to show me how they impacted my world. So the question is, how did that happen? Well, the way that that happens for me is that I make sure that in my life, my relationship with God has got moments like Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. And so my prayer life is not all, God, I need you to be doing this. My prayer life is, Lord, what do you want to show me? How do you want to talk to me? What is it that you want me to know? And the way that I do that is that I journal. And so I have a pen and a paper. Um, I'm old school. Uh, when anyone under 35 comes into my office, the very first thing they all say, without, without failure, you don't have a computer in here. And it's like, no, I don't. Why would I need a computer? And that just doesn't compute with them at all. The reason I don't have a computer is because when I went to university to get a book out of the library, you used microfiche. And when you had a, and a, and a computer, would have filled half of this room. There was no such thing as a personal computer. And so I've just chosen to be a dinosaur and stay in the dark ages. And, uh, and so the four books that I've written, I've written all by hand. And I just give them to my PA. She's got a computer. And so she types. And uh, so, so, but, so, so there's this, how did I get there? <laughs> um, and so I, I'm, that's right, journaling. Uh, and so for me, pen and paper, when I have a pen in my hand and I have a piece of paper, I, I get connected to what's going on on the inside. Yeah. Somehow it connects me with what's going on. And so, so I've, I've realised that there's this thing called a free flow of consciousness that the Holy Spirit invades. And so I'll, I will have been, I'll have had time in worship just on my own and I'll have prayed about, you know, God heal Aaron, you know, get that appendicitis out of her body and blah, 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 you know, all the things you want God to do for you. But then it comes to a space of you're a God of conversation, so you've got something to say to me today. You've got some questions you want to ask me. So what do those questions look like? And then the pen and paper in my hand, and I just start writing. Or I draw. I do a lot of mind mapping. I get ideas. I'll get an idea, and I see that idea is connected to that idea. And, and so I just, I just start to get it all out on paper. And then once it's out on paper... I start to explore the different elements of what I've written down and I start to ask God more questions about it and I, I guess I just spend some time what I would call soaking, just, just being with him and trying to hear what he's saying to me and how I connect all the dots that he's trying to say. And so, so these four fears start to emerge and so I start to do mind maps and, and I say, so where did it come from? How did I start to believe those sorts of things? And, and it's, it's in there that I started to come to to understand some of the stuff that I now know in more detail about how fear gets into our lives and the counsels of fear arrive. Um, and so, so I'm, I'm mind mapping and I'm praying and I'm, I'm just beginning to see flipping heck. These fears go everywhere through my life. And I'm starting to realise that when I'm in certain meetings and people say certain things, it pushes the inner turmoil on the inside and I step into a leadership role and I give myself permission because I'm the leader to shut the conversation down and I use control and power because that's what leaders often do to get their own way and, and start to manipulate things. And I've never thought about it like this before, but I start to go, gee whiz, this is a bit of a problem. Um, I, I think I'm in some trouble here. I'd walked with God long enough to know that when he starts to shine his light into that sort of area in your world, he really wants to bring about a change. And I also know that when that happens, everything goes to custard and life becomes really chaotic and you lose all of your bearings and your sense of the world is all, is, is all in right place. And so I got into January of 2005 and I realised that I was being given an option by the Lord. I, I want to set you free from this fear. Right at that moment, a red herring came along. I was offered another job in one of the largest NGOs in Australia to be a part of their executive leadership team. And I felt like the Lord said to me, you can take that job if you want. Because I was starting to think, if I just wasn't leading this church, I wouldn't be feeling all this fear. But the Lord is saying, it's got nothing to do with the circumstances, Peter. It's got everything to do with what's on the inside of you. You can take that job if you want. I'll just come after the fear another way later on. So we can deal with it now or we can deal with it later. Your choice, I don't mind. So Lynn and I talked about it 
and we recognised if I was going to deal with it now, that I was going to lose my way as the leader of Stairway for a period of time, that I wasn't going to function well as a leader because I'd be focused on, on the pain that I was beginning to experience emotionally. And so we spoke to the two uh, leaders, uh, the two elders of our church that I directly, was directly accountable to and the two senior staff that, I was direct, that I'd made myself accountable to. And I said to them, I am going to come unstuck. I don't know how badly I'm going to come unstuck, but I know that if the Lord wants to set me free from this fear that I'm experiencing, he is going to show it to me in ever-increasing measure and I'm not going to know what to do with it and I'm going to need him to turn up to heal me. And so as I do that, I'm not going to lead well. And so I need you to either sack me now, because I don't want you to sack me through the middle of it, because I'd watched other leaders go through the same process. This is God who's at work. He's the vine dresser. He comes and cuts off a fruitful branch so you might be more fruitful. He's got no problem with doing this sort of stuff. And you get totally disorientated. And so I'd seen other leaders that had gone through this sort of work with God and others around them didn't understand what God was doing. He didn't understand who was cutting off a fruitful branch to make them more fruitful. They just thought that this leader has lost their way. They're not emotionally up to the job. They've lost their ability to lead. So we'll send them away on two months leave and we'll orchestrate a coup so that when they come back they don't have a job. And I've watched that happen time and time and time again in churches. And so I said, don't do that to me because that won't help. That'll just be a rejection at a too high a level. So... I'm happy if, if you want me to resign or you're going to sack me, let's do that now, not in the middle of this thing. Otherwise, I need you to walk with me through this time. It was a really important piece of the puzzle because when we're facing our pain, we need to do it in community, not on our own. We're not meant to face this sort of level of fear that we all carry around um, on our own. Uh, it's actually, this is where surrender becomes really important because what we, shame, fear, control... I'm going to control it by not telling anybody about it and trying to get through. But the Bible says confess your sin to one another so that you might be healed. The Christian life is to be done in community. It's not to be done in isolation. Um, but then you've got to find the people that you can trust because you think you can trust some people, but good people can go bad on you. And you end up with Job's counsellors and people giving you advice that is really hopeless and not much help at all, uh, even though it sounds spiritual. And so... Um, so I knew I had to do this in community, and so I, I wanted them to walk with me through it. Uh, so as I say, A Voyage of Mercy, uh, the book unpacks all of this a lot more. There are four emails in A Voyage of Mercy that I wrote. I actually decided I needed people praying with me, and so I invited about 20 people who I really trusted into my world, and, and I would write to them about every month or six weeks and say, this is where I'm up to, this is what ha is happening, can you keep praying for me on this basis? And so, so I had to break that control piece of not letting people in. And I had to let community go to work so that I would be vulnerable and surrender to what the Lord was wanting to do. Um, and so fortunately, they said, no, we love you enough. I, I think they were also saying, we don't want your job. Um, but, uh, but we love you enough that we'll go on this journey with you. And so we started a journey together. So that was in February of 2005. By April of 2005, I was lying on my bed in a fetal position on two Sundays in a row, crying my eyes out, absolutely convinced that nobody was going to turn up to church because I was so afraid that I was failing. And so fear is false expectations appearing real. And so I had this false expectation that my identity and my value and my worth was tied up in the fruitfulness of my life. And most of us find our identity and our value and worth in something external to us rather than who God thinks that we are. Because we're all trying to belong and be secure and be significant. And we're always, so we're, we, we want to belong and be secure and significant. And so we attach those needs to things in our circumstances rather than being attached to God. And so, um, so Lynn rang you know, the two senior staff and said, he's not up to it today, you'll need to cover for him. Um, I continued not to be doing so well and eventually realised I needed some time away. So I went to New Zealand for two weeks to visit some friends over there and just get away from all the stuff that was going on. I have some friends in New Zealand who have developed a, a, a way of doing prayer ministry. It's called God Spaces or Refocusing and some of you in the room are aware of it. And so, um, uh, so their names are Hamish and Di. They have a beach house outside of 
Auckland, or they used to, they sold it recently, um, at a beach called Piha. And so we were in their beach house, and Di was starting to lead me through these questions, which is part of the whole refocusing thing. And, uh, and so she said, because I was so afraid about my future and not being able to step into my future, she said, where, well, where is your future? And I said, it's out the window. How far out the window? It's out near that tree. And so you start to get into these free-flowing pieces of consciousness where it doesn't make sense logically, but somehow God's in it. And, and so Di said, what would it be like if we go to your future? I said, I've got no idea. Probably pretty cold because it's not a nice, night, not nice day out there. It was June and in Auckland. And so she said, well, come on, let's go out to your future. And so I went out. And so if, if the, the tree that I pointed to is the pulpit, I probably got about this close to it. So I'm just taking a big deep breath so that I don't cry too much. Um, and so... Didn't work. Um, so I said, are you close enough to your future? And I knew instantly that I wasn't. And I wasn't close because it was surrounded by a whole bunch of tall grass because of the beach house and it was all wet. And I didn't want to climb in there. She said, well, why, you need to get as close as you can. And I said, okay. And so I, I stood beside the tree and I burst into tears. And I cried and I cried and I cried. And in a moment, just one of those nanosecond things, I knew God loved me because I breathed and it had nothing to do with what I did. It was nothing to do with my fruitfulness. It was nothing to do. He just loved me. And so I'm there crying and dies watching this happen. And she said, how much longer do you think you'll be? I'm getting really cold. <laughs> Thanks for your pastoral concern. I'm deeply moved by that. I said, I'm going inside. You come in when you're ready. And so I don't know. I'd, I'd probably stay there a couple of minutes, just a couple of more minutes, just weeping and weeping. And so I had an encounter. I had an experience with the love of God when I stood beside that tree which now gave me another place to stand when all that information would come to me that I'm failing. And so I go back to work and I'm sitting in meetings. And so just like Jesus said, you're all going to be scattered and leave me alone, but I'm not alone. Now what I had was, so I get this information, you're failing, you've been misunderstood, and I can feel it coming at me, but I'm now self-aware. I can actually go to the fear or I can step over here and I can close my eyes and I can cry again and feel that love. And so I just learned to do that. Over 12 months, I just kept going back there. There were times where I had to excuse myself to go to the toilet, not because I needed the toilet, but just because I wanted to cry. Because I knew that if I could stand here, whenever I stood here and that information came at me, it didn't have the same power over me as if I was standing here. And so I just had to figure out how to get over here. And the more I got over here, that died and this grew. Yeah. I, starved that of its, I starved that of its influence and I fed the influence of God. And so, so God will give us these experiences and encounters with him in different ways for different people. But I do think that there are a number of things that are connected to it. The first thing that I think is connected to it is that we must do it in community. We've got to learn to be vulnerable. We've got to learn to surrender. We've got to learn to trust other people. The second thing I know about it is that he'll want to do it in conversation with us. And so for me, the conversation works by journaling. I don't know how that works for you. I just know that journaling works for me in conversation because it keeps me focused. My brain jumps all over the place if I don't put a bit in the horse's mouth and harness it and make it go where, where I need to go. And so I journal. Then I know that prayer is an important part of it. But then I also know that God will, he will allow me to see the depth of it which means that I will come unstuck. It, it means that I will experience the pain that I had as a child when I felt abandoned by my, by my parents for a bunch of reasons, which I'm not going to go into today. Um, I just don't have the time. But that inner turmoil, he'll actually want me to see it for what it really is and invite him into it. And so that's why, you know, I, I, I just kept falling deeper and deeper into it. I thought I'd reach the bottom a couple of times, but they were just ledges on the way down to the bottom. And so I just had to stay with the process of unravelling and allowing, because what he was doing is he's, he's loosening all of the soil all around the roots of this thing 
so that when I stand beside the tree, he can just pull it out in one go. But I need to give him permission to do that. I need to be able to see it and say, I don't want to be like this anymore. I don't want to respond like this. I, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with it. Can you, can you help me? And, and so you, you go through this process where you have to, you have to surrender to him. It's, it's about just letting go and saying, whatever it takes, I'm prepared to go through the process. Um, some of you have heard me use this description before. Um, forgive me for boring you if I use it again, but it'll be helpful for those who haven't heard it. Um, the way I sort of illustrate this is that um, if at the age of eight years old I'm playing on my, the monkey bars in our house in Sydney where we were living at the time and I fell off the monkey bars and I broke my arm, um, mum and dad aren't around and I just pretend that everything's okay, my arm will actually heal up all by itself. My bones have calcification properties. It will heal up. I don't need a doctor for it to heal up. I need a doctor to make it heal straight. But if I don't go to the doctor, my, my bone will knit back together again. But if I don't go to the doctor, it probably won't heal up straight and it will knit back together and I'll lose some use of my arm or, or my hand. And so then I move to Melbourne and I get into one of the beautiful winters that we have down there. Um, and, and the cold starts to cause pain to come to my arm. And, and, I, and I use the pain as a sign that something's wrong. And so I go to the doctor. He takes an x-ray of it. He says, you broke your arm and it hasn't healed up properly. I said, yeah, I know. I can remember that. Just like our bones have calcification properties, emotionally we, we calcify as well. Emotionally we know how to put ourselves back together. And so as we're growing up and we have all these difficult experiences in life, we put ourselves back together in our own way and our own strength with our own understanding. But then we come to faith and we start following Jesus and we start to feel some pain emotionally, just like I felt the pain of my fears at the end of 2004. And pain is actually a sign that you need help. Most of us recognise that when we have physical pain, just like my daughter Erin had physical pain this morning, she recognised she needed a doctor. But when we have psychological and emotional and social pain, we don't necessarily realise that we need a doctor. His name's Jesus. He's the Holy Spirit. He's our comforter. He's our counsellor. And we're actually meant to come to him for help. Now, with a broken bone, the doctor says, well, the only way that I can help you is that I have to break the bone again. And then we're going to put a cast around it and it'll heal up straight. Well, Dr. Jesus is exactly the same. I actually have to surrender to letting the doctor break my arm. I have to surrender to Jesus and say, okay, let's break this thing. Let's break the power of these belief systems that I have allowed to be developed. And then you will put your word and your spirit around it so we heal up straight this time that I actually begin to believe what you believe and yield to what you, what you are saying. And that, so when, if you ever you know, had to have a broken bone that has to be broken again, you enter into a time, a time of chaos. You enter into a time of you, you're not, things aren't normal anymore. But what happens when you get healed is that you get the full function of your hand and your arm back. And what happens when you're healed on the inside, you get the full function of who God created you to be back. And you start to be able to live the way that he wants you to live and to be the person that he wants you to be. And so, so this, what I'm describing, is an extreme end of perfect love casting out fear. And so if love is the, the measure of my maturing process, that those sorts of moments, there's only one or two of those sorts of severe, extreme moments in a person's life. But they come back down, it's like a continuum. There, there will be moments, so there, there's moments when I'm in worship with the Lord, I'm crying and I'm aware of some one little thing. And so it's back you know, down the continuum here. It's, it's more back down this end. And I'm having another experience and encounter. So in describing that, I'm not saying that that's how God deals with all the inner turmoil. But there are some real strongholds inside of all of us that take that sort of experience. But there's a whole bunch of other ways that God does it in here. But they'll generally be connected to those main things that I've talked about. And that is self-awareness. It's about community. It's in worship with others that it happens. It's, it's about being open and vulnerable and letting God be God and acknowledging that I actually need help. And in that whole process, we begin to experience him. And we begin to know him and we begin to know how to love other people. 
Stairway today is uh, who it has become, what it has become, is deeply connected to what happened to me when I stood beside the tree in New Zealand because I'm the primary gatekeeper um, at Stairway. Andrew likes this little joke, but we, we're a theocracy at Stairway. We're not a democracy. Uh, our congregation doesn't vote on anything. Uh, it's not a democracy. We're a theocracy, and I'm Theo. And, uh, and so, so I, I share my power with everybody else. I'm, I'm a collaborative leader, and I want to empower everybody else to, to win and to have a great life. And so as, as Theo, I share my power and control with everybody else. And, and I want them, you know, to succeed. Um, and, but in, in that whole process, it's because I am the primary gatekeeper, I, I, was, I needed to be set free from my need to control as a leader so that the Holy Spirit could break in amongst us and do what he needed to do. If I, if I hadn't have had this experience, I would have wanted to control what God was doing and I wouldn't have given him the room to be who he needed to be to help people become who they need to become. And so, so for all of us, you know, we, we all have influence over somebody. In a family, the parents, these experiences open the way up for our children. It, it's, it's not, I just happen to you know, have the privilege and responsibility of leading a large number of people, which has got nothing to do with me. It's got everything to do with who God has called me to be. But I, but I know that my breakthroughs bring breakthroughs for others. And so not only do I get set free, but then others benefit from that as well because more of God can get out of me that's already in me. I'm not damming him up. I'm actually letting the rivers flow. And so, so it's, it's actually connected to who God wants us to be, not just for us, but for the benefit of other people around us. So, my pleasure. Let me just briefly touch on uh, fear a little bit more, surrender and vulnerability, and then we'll pray a bit and we'll go and have some lunch. Um, love and fear, as I said before, stand in a complex relationship with one another. Ever since the Garden of Eden, the human struggle has been this. It's to escape from the group of fear and be open to the embrace of love. So in the Garden of Eden, as I said, shame and fear came in to the human condition. And so the journey now as disciples is to escape the grip of fear, to embrace the power of love. And so there's this complex relationship with, I actually receive more love when I identify more fear. It's a really, it's a, it's a fascinating sort of study of human behavior and human nature that the, the way I discover more love, because perfect love casts out all fear, and it's actually fear that's stopping me from loving well, I need to become aware of the fear that's causing me to hide so that I can invite God into it so that I can experience more of his love. But it's when God shines light into the areas where we're afraid that if we don't understand that he unconditionally loves us, because my fear, my counsels of fear have come from answering the question, what is right and required for acceptance? So I'm afraid that I'm not going to be accepted anymore. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. They were afraid that God would not accept them anymore. And so the very thing that I'm afraid of, I have to face. It takes enormous courage. It takes enormous courage to face the very thing that I am trying to defend, that I'm trying to control. And all of us, we, we all try and control our world in different ways so we don't have to face these fears. But what the Holy Spirit does is he shines light in there and he actually wants us to face it. But we won't face it if we think that he's angry or upset or he's going to punish us for the way that we manage our fear. And so there's this complex relationship between knowing somewhere in us that he loves us enough not to leave us where we are and that we can trust that love to invite him into the fear, but we don't have enough love to get rid of the fear until we trust that we can invite him into it. Does that sound complex? It sounds complex as I'm saying it, but, but that's, that's the, the, the little dance that goes on for all of us. And so, but the only way in here is to trust that love, that unconditional love that God has for us, is to trust that he's not upset with me, is to trust that he, I, I am totally and utterly accepted 
I am, I'm so accepted, it's unbelievable. And that in my total and utter acceptance, I can be vulnerable with him. And I can invite him into that space that I'm so afraid that if anybody finds out, they won't like me. And so there's this complex relationship between fear and love. And I think it's part of the human condition and certainly as followers of Jesus, it's this thing. And so we, we create, the problem is that we, so, oh, a million thoughts, boom, 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 boom. Um, so my fear causes me, so let me, let me try and earth it with me. So, you know, 15 years ago, my fear, I'd be in a staff meeting, my fear would cause me to feel like what somebody was saying was threatening my sense of well-being. And because of my choleric temperament and because of the great brain that I've got in my head, I would push back too hard. When I get, if I get back into a corner, I turn into a steamroller and I come out and just roll over the top of everybody. But I legitimised it 15 years ago as being the leader and I know what's right for all of us and so we're going to do it my way. And so, so my fear causes me to behave in a way that is not loving. And so now what I've got to do is I've got to actually be able to acknowledge that it wasn't what they were saying, but it's what I was experiencing, which is my stuff. And so I have to be courageous enough to be able to look at my fear. But, but if, if I start to look at it and start to acknowledge it, then where am I going to go to be safe? Because I stay safe by avoiding it, by hiding from it. And so, so in this process, the Holy Spirit steps in. And if we've got this Old Testament idea of God, that he's a demanding God, it's a gospel of demand, and it's all about behaviour management, and it's, it's, it's the fact that I, I'm in trouble now, which is a good Catholic way of thinking about life, um, then I'm not going to come to him. I'm not going to trust him with that. I'm going to want to keep it hidden. And so I'm not going to love well. But, it, but it's actually realising, you know what, this, this, I need to make pain, my friend. I'm feeling the pain. I'm doing something I don't want to do. And I'm not, I'm not feeling proud of myself about doing it, but I'm feeling safe. And so my safety overwhelms my sense of failure that I'm not doing this well, as long as I'm safe. Because most of us make the highest priority being safe rather than humility. And so it's, it's understanding this, this complex relationship that, that says, my God actually completely and utterly accepts me. He chose me. He came and found me. And with all of my crap, he put me in the Godhead. And he put me in there because he's the resource that can set me free. He totally and utterly accepts me with all of my stuff. He doesn't want me to stay stuck in it, but he does accept me. And so it's, it's learning to trust that so that we can escape the grip of fear and embrace love. And so, so in all of that, we have to understand the power of surrender. We've got to understand what surrender is. Surrender is not obedience. Um, surrender, let me just find it here. I'm, I'm jumping over a whole bunch of thoughts here. So surrender is submission in our heart and will, not simply complying in our behaviour. So surrender is is submission in our heart and our will. It's not simply complying with our behaviour. And so we can, on the outside, pretend that we're loving people. But, but we created these cultures where vulnerability and authenticity are not really embraced. So, somebody, somebody, so I blow it in the staff meeting. Now, can, at that point, can I be vulnerable and authentic with everybody and say, I'm sorry, I did this because this is what I'm believing or do I feel like I need to keep the mask on? Now, if I keep the mask on, everybody leaves the meeting and says, what a bastard he is. It's so difficult to work with him. And this is where I can introduce some people who you know, don't think I'm as nice as I think I am because, because they've experienced that part of me. They experienced the steamroller coming out. And so in our church communities, where we're meant to disciples who love one another so the whole world knows that, we, that we're disciples of Jesus unless we're able to step into these places where we give one another permission to make mistakes, where we give one another permission, I wonder what fear button just got pushed inside of you that you're now trying to control the situation by losing your emotional well-being. How can I have that conversation with you? And, and until we actually begin to confront some of this stuff and acknowledge that it's running around, we'll continue to play these nice church games 
But in playing the nice church games, eventually people do get ticked off with one another and they become critical and judgmental and they leave and they make, and we get divisions and you know, we end up with something like 300,000 Protestant expressions of the Christian faith. And, uh, and so there's, there's this place in which we all need to be able to acknowledge, you know what, there are times when I don't love well because I'm letting shame, fear and control actually influence the way that I'm responding. And when I see that in somebody else, I'm not going to criticise them now. I'm actually going to, I'm going to love them and draw alongside them and say, can I help you? Can I, I, I think you're in a bit of pain right there. Can we, do you want to talk about it? I'd love to understand what's going on for you. I'm not going to punish you. I just want to understand what's going on because I might be, able to, might be able to help you. That's one of the reasons why I talk like this, the way that I, that I do. You know, there's a number of reasons why people join Stairway. The second or third one for most people is because I'm vulnerable and I'm open and people can, can, can connect with the reality of what it is to follow Jesus. And the reason, Because I'm actually trying to create cultures where we go, you know what, the only way to get set free is to, be, to surrender and to be vulnerable and to be authentic. And if we keep playing the games, then all we do is create an environment where the only way that people have got to deal with their fear is to become critical and judgmental because they feel they have to keep the masks up and stay in control. And so surrender is about surrendering in our hearts. It's not just complying with our behaviour. Those who surrender obey, but not all who obey surrender. Those who surrender will obey God, but not all those who obey surrender. So we can keep the mask up, we can look like we're obeying, but we haven't actually surrendered in our heart until enough pressure comes along to squeeze us and, and we, we, we stop obeying <laughs> because we, we go with what's actually going on on the inside. So, so then let me just talk a little bit about vulnerability before we come to an end. So vulnerability is it's daring to accept myself and receive love for who I am in my nakedness and it's indispensable precondition for genuine transformation. It's, it's been able to accept myself and my nakedness, that, I, that I'm not whole, that I'm not complete, that, that I, that I'm, and I'm okay with that. I'm not okay in that I can stay here, but I'm okay that I am, I am actually here. So what vulnerability does says, says, I'm okay, and I know that unless I become vulnerable, I won't actually be transformed. Unless I'm prepared to be vulnerable. And so that vulnerability then actually does spill out into some loving relationships. And so, so Lynn and I have had to learn how to be vulnerable with one another. Most marriages, there are no-go areas. You, you, most, there are areas where you always argue if you go to that space. You always have an argument. And so you just decide, well, we won't talk about that. It just becomes a no-go area. But, but that's, you, you don't grow if that's the way you do it. And so you've got to become vulnerable and be able to take personal responsibility about why do I get so upset when we talk about that? Why do I become so fearful when we talk about that? What is it in me that causes me to respond like Jesus wouldn't respond in there? And, that, and the Holy Spirit will want to pull you in there. And the only way that you'll be transformed is if you're vulnerable enough to look at your own stuff. Look at your own nakedness, look at your own thing. And so why would you do that? Well, you certainly don't do it because it's pleasurable. It's chaotic and it's overwhelming and it's painful, but you do it because you want to be the greatest disciple of Jesus that you can be. And that means learning to love well. And so that means I have to allow myself to be taken into those zones where I'm not loving well. And the only way that I will get in there is through surrender and vulnerability. And so you just start to accept that this is part of the deal, that I have to... And, and so when you talk... You see, the, when, I, when I actually say that I was lying on my bed in a fetal position for two Sundays in a row in April of 2005, so afraid that nobody would go to church, I still feel vulnerable telling you that. Because it's like, are you really that screwed up, Peter? <laughs> Were you really... You know, it's like, surely. But that was my reality. And so unless I can be vulnerable and actually own that that's my reality, I'll never get out the other side of it because I won't face it for what it really is. And so, so, so being a follower of Jesus is about being transformed. It's, it's understanding this big principle, and I'll finish here, I hope, without telling you a lie, that, that, that the Holy Spirit is trying to get us conformed to the image of Christ. He's totally committed to this idea. It's not negotiable in his world. 
And so he, he wants us to be conformed to the image and I think love is his highest pursuit. And so he will, to do that, he will let you see where you're not loving well, which requires you understanding this complex dance between fear and, fear and, and love, which leads to the desire to control, which is overcome through surrender, and it requires vulnerability, which is overcome through humility. And so surrender and humility become key pieces of being transformed to be like Jesus. The only reason you'll give yourself to this is that you actually love the Lord enough that you want to be like him. And you recognise that the whole world needs a bunch of Christians that would actually go on this journey. Because by this all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Not by your nice church buildings. Not by your nice morals and ethics. Not by, or it's by your love for one another. So I've just made a decision you know, about a decade ago that this would be what marks my life and trying to convince enough other people to come on the journey with me. So thanks for letting me try and convince you today. (laughs) Why don't we just close our eyes and let's pray. So one of my big questions for you is what are you afraid of? Let me just, um, with your eyes closed, let me just read this for you. Fear that has found a way to attach to external sources is very hard to identify. Fear that has not found a way. Fear that has not found a way to attach to external sources is very hard to identify. It has many faces, all of which mask its essential nature. Some people fear intimacy, while others fear solitude. Some fear loss of control, while others fear loss of image. Some fear the strength of their feelings, while others fear the loss of some comforting feeling. Some fear attention, while others fear neglect. Some fear life, while others fear death. Some fear pleasure while others fear pain. Some fear loss of love while others fear love itself. But fear can be even more elusive than this. Sometimes it can have no face at all. It is successfully, if it is successfully avoided, it leaves almost no trace of its presence. And so those of us who are not good at avoiding our sources of fear may come to conclude that fear is no part in our story. But we are mistaken. Fear, though not experienced, is still present and a source of bondage. It took me a long time to become aware of the presence of fear in my life. I had virtually eliminated fear by investing enormous amounts of energy in avoiding failure and criticism. I didn't think of myself as fearful because I was generally successful in avoiding what I feared. But doing so required compulsive overachievement. It also required that I stay on the treadmill of earning respect by surpassing any reasonable expectations anyone could have of me. Obviously, I was paying a very high price for my avoidance. I want you to think a little bit, just ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what am I afraid of? So Lord, I pray for those parts of us where we're afraid. I pray for each person here today that you would give us the courage to surrender to the truth that we are afraid, to be vulnerable in allowing you to show us where the fear comes from and that we would have experiences and encounters with your love so that fear would be defeated. Lord, help us to make love the acid test of our maturity. And I just ask, Lord, I just release grace to every single one of us right now, both to understand our fear and to be able to embrace love in the process. I thank you, Lord, that you're leading us and guiding us because if we can learn to love one another as you love us, then the whole world will want to join with us 
because it will be so attractive. So I thank you, Lord, for the journey that you're taking us on and that, Lord, we're going to be set free because of your deep love and acceptance of us. Amen. This is where I pass the mic on to Melanie and say, here, close, love. Um, <laughs> well, there's not much to follow up after that then to say um, thank you. Thank you, Peter, for sharing your heart. Thank you for more so opening your heart uh, that we may learn and go on the journey that, that you've so, um, so well and so eloquently shared with us and so vulnerably shared with us. So for those that are here, I really pray and hope that uh, you've taken something from today, uh, particularly the prayer that was just prayed at the end, that God showed you something, showed me something that we can go away and start unpacking for our own lives, that we might become better disciples for Jesus, or more in his image, amen. It's probably the right wording. <laughs> so apart from all that, have a wonderful weekend, have a wonderful day, uh, enjoy what food's out there, enjoy the company of those that are here. Uh, and be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Oh, and if you'd like a copy of the book, Priorities, there are some there if you don't already have one. Uh, Justin will give us a hand, I'm assuming. <laughs>